HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Season 2 of Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric, Wythe Marshall, and Allie Whist. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow food, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming and urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. Thank you so much for listening. Hey everyone, Jeffrey Landau here. In this interview, I sit down with Tanisio Sanima. Tanisio is the urban ag manager for the city of East Point, just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. He is one of the coolest, smartest, most down-to-earth guys I've met. And he and I have an incredible conversation about the history of agriculture, about the vision he has for the city of East Point's urban ag plan, the challenges that farmers have faced, the reasons why we aren't producing as much food as we can, and where he thinks we're going to be going with urban ag in the city of East Point and the general area around Atlanta, Georgia. He shares a wealth of knowledge and resources towards the end, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. So uh, my name is Tenisio Sayanima. Uh, I am uh, the great-grandson of Augusta Long, uh, a farmer who uh, had farmed well into his 80s in Gauls, Texas. My family's been farming since 1882. So we are what is known as centurion landowners. We still own the land to this day. And uh, why I bring all of that up to say is that, yes, I work in city government as an urban agricultural manager, but at heart and by just drive, I'm a farmer. You know, I'm out here just doing what farmers do. And I realized that in order for the story to be told best and for the efficacy of this work to really be met, you know, it's got to be done by the people who truly have their, you know, hands in the soil, pun intended, mm-hmm. you know. And so that's who I am. I'm a farmer 
who just happens to now work with city governments to help them understand what we as farmers and the holistic food system need to function. And what is the the jurisdiction and the responsibilities you have as a um, urban agriculture manager? Mm-hmm. So my jurisdiction is uh, with the city of East Point. City of East Point is actually a 12 um, square mile city, uh, occupies uh, or is home, shall I say, to roughly 35,000 residents. Um, and basically what my function is, is I am to help implement a city agriculture plan. Uh, this city agriculture plan uh, is not just some nebulous idea. It's a literal thing. Uh, in 2019, uh, the organization that I work with to do this work, Foodwell Alliance, put out a call to 54 cities in the metropolitan Atlanta area to say, if you're interested in having a city agriculture plan written, we want to hear from you. Long story short, East Point won, and uh, we spent from January 2020 up until April 19th of this year, not only producing a plan that comprised all of these different focus areas of a whole food system, uh, but then we pitched it to city council. It was approved. And as a part of that approval, what we asked for is that that city have an actual municipal officer help to put that plan into place. So this plan is what I'm in charge of basically helping to bring into life. Now, mind you, this plan comprises activities that are already going on in the city. So it's not as if like my job is to start something, but it's really to help optimize what's already going on. So we have a food hub in East Point. We have a compost producer and distributor in East Point. We have a farmer's market in East Point. We have farmers in East Point. We've got farm-to-table restaurants. We've got schools that are wanting to do, you know, uh, farm-to-school activities. And so it's my job to help make what they all already do optimal, right? And to give a municipal level of support to it, no different than all the other public services, right? Utility, fire, you name it. Yeah. So that's really my job is to just make what everybody's already doing a lot easier, you know, and then create a network amongst those people so that they're closing their own loops as a whole food system. Right. There's no reason to have a food hub and have farmers. And those farmers are still having to go sell outside of East Point. If they want to do that, they should be able to do that. And they should at least feel like, you know what, I can always keep things right here within the city in which I operate. So that's the other piece is to really help strengthen the relationship between all those ancillary parts of the food system so that they function more as a whole. But before your position was created, um, can you give me a sense of how these different groups were interacting with each other? Were Mm -hmm. they communicating and trying to organize or were they very much siloed in their respective Mm -hmm. functions? No, they were definitely itemized into silos. And I wouldn't say it was by any means, but just by default, you know, uh, the food hub, for example, uh, is known as the common market, you know, shouts out to the common market. I actually used to work there at one point, you know, their focus was on purchasing and selling food within 250 miles of their warehouse in East point. Um, you know, due to the market that they serve, which is a lot of institutions, right. The demand of food that they have, Uh, I think was really outpacing, you know, what could be what was currently being produced in East Point. However, as an example of, you know, how to move forward into the future, even though I know this question is about the past, you know, the goal is to be able to say to them, well, 
are there other market outlets that the farmers in East Point can serve, right? And so, for example, going back to the past, they do have a program that's uh, beginning to flesh itself out even more, where it's basically like a CSA, right? But it's a CSA for the constituents that work at the institutions that they serve, right? So they knew, okay, if we're going to sell to a local hospital, it's great for that hospital to serve that food in its cafeterias or to its patients. But what about the employees? Like, shouldn't they also be able to have access to that food to to go home with them? And since that hospital is already receiving a delivery, they are, in essence, like a drop-off point, an aggregation point. Why not also provide opportunities for the people to take food with them? Well, that becomes an easier lift for a smaller farmer to be able to access that market that they wouldn't have been able to do on their own, right? So what I have done is looked at what was not happening in the past just due to, again, lack of capacity or just Mm -hmm. strategizing. And I'm now here to try and help think through that stuff with people. Um, But that's just one example. I mean, other examples are, you know, same thing. You've got a farmer's market that's been there now several years. Um, It's doing well though it hasn't had an opportunity to really um, gain as much traction, again, with the farmers that are right there in the city. Not saying that it's just not having local farmers there. It definitely does. But again, East Point itself is home to one of the oldest farm sites in metropolitan Atlanta. That site used to be managed by what is known as Truly Living Well. Now it is managed by uh, a farm called Shamba Cultivating Ground. Shamba does not sell at that market. That needs to happen. Right. And so, uh, again, I think it's just that people kind of got into the routine of just doing what they do. Yeah. And no one took the time to just say, as you just said, let's get organized. Right. And let's create a whole system Mm -hmm. to where we close the loop. And necessity is the mother of invention. So it's interesting that this city agriculture plan was being crafted unbeknownst to itself in the world's greatest event ever that we've all seen since we're alive, i.e. Mm COVID-19. And the necessity is now more on people's minds. I mean, as a farmer, I'm telling you, man, though I can comfortably and gladly say I did relatively good before COVID, when COVID hit, I mean, I went through the roof. Yeah. I mean, and it's just because the value proposition of what I do increased by default. People were like, well, we can't get... The food we want from the grocery stores is easily. Yeah. But these farmers are right here. So why do you, so like you touched on something interesting and it feels like you're alluding to like most people don't really know a farmer or don't really interact with farmers. But when, mm-hmm. you know, such a great shock to the system like COVID-19 hits, you know, people start asking different questions like, where's mm-hmm. my food coming from? Why is there no food on the shelves? Um in your experience, you know, why is there this disconnect between the, the consumer and the producer? You know, I mean, that's a it's a loaded question, man. It's a it's a, it's a long <laughs> answer. Yeah. So I'm going to try and abbreviate it as much as I can. Number one, we have to go back to the origins of how people have even been gaining agricultural products. Mm-hmm. Let's not even just limit it to food, but I will bring it into food. You know, we're a country that was built on captivity. Mm-hmm. I mean, so if you've got people of all walks of life, who've basically been able to get things at reduced cost, right? That already sets a certain level of valuation right there. We move out of captivity into the world wars. And during the world wars, you have the, the, the need, if you will, of the government 
to pull back its food supply from the people and contribute that towards the war effort. And that sparked what was known as the victory gardens, right? To where literally people's gardens were producing enough food for themselves as a patriotic duty to make sure that the food supply that was originally going to them now goes to the soldiers. But now think about that. When you have to feed people who are fighting a war, you got to be real efficient. Mm -hmm. And I'm throwing up quotes, right, about how you do things. So, you know, a lot of the diversity of food supply that we used to be able to get that was based upon what was grown right here in this country had to really be reduced, you know, down to things that were just staples that could be produced uh, uh, reliably, quickly and in abundance. So now you got the corn. Now you've got the soy. Now you've got the wheat. Mm -hmm. Right. Becoming more of the staples. And when the war is over, the companies that were contracted to do that work, there's no reason for them to, you know, not continue to provide so those systems then became retrofit back onto the very society that they were taken away from originally. And we've now gotten this taste, pun intended, of food that's very limited in its diversity and its dynamics of distribution. And people have just become accustomed to this, right? Generations have gone by where people didn't even know anything else. Now I'm going to throw one more piece into this. Uh, which does kind of tie back to that chattel captivity history. So we have to remember that previous to the World Wars, we had a civil war. And in that civil war, it took place during a time in which agrarian lifestyle was the thing, right? Even if it wasn't being an agrarian for the sake of producing food, everything we did came from the land. Like lumberjacks were a real deal. Mm -hmm. Nobody just built their house by going to Home Depot or some lumberyard. They had to like know people who had those skills, you know, blacksmiths, masons, you name it. Everybody was like touching the earth and using those skills to produce, you know, this society. Well, when it came to agriculture and, and as a result, the Civil War affecting, uh, the density of skill sets, let's remember that war killed off, it was a brain drain. It killed off so many people. Mm-hmm. The government, by way of order of Lincoln, had to say, we got to hit the reset on this country. And they passed the Merrill Act of 1862, I believe. Point is, that act is what created the land grant colleges, mm-hmm. right? So UGA, one of the oldest land grant colleges, Texas AM, you name it, uh, Florida University. All these schools were designed, number one, to receive free land from the government and to reteach the skills that we lost through this brain drain. Well, think about it. In the 1860s, there was only portions of the population that were even legally allowed to go to those schools, and it did not include people of African descent. Mm -hmm. So then you started seeing, as time went on, institutions within those communities being created, the Howards the Hampton universities. And in a little small town in Alabama, one that was created was called Tuskegee Institute, which in 1881 decided it's going to be an institute that does very much the same things as what those land grant colleges were doing that black people couldn't go to. And are you familiar with what is known as cooperative extension? Mm -hmm. Do you know where its origins are at? Um, don't think so. It's at Tuskegee Institute because Tuskegee realized, okay, in this period in time in which we're creating this institution, 
We created it so our people can go to these schools. And mind you, 1881 is post-emancipation, but we know just because emancipation yeah. happened doesn't mean everything was just all equitable. But point being, we have an institution that people can come to comfortably, but we still know not everybody can come here. So are we going to just be elitist and just create this new class of people and forget about the people who are still actually doing a lot of the work that we need to survive? Or are we going to go back to those people? And they created what was known as the Jessup Wagon, and that was managed by George Washington Carver. And he would go and teach the skills to the farmers, teach the skills to the wives of the farmers. And that system got so tight that eventually the USDA came to Tuskegee and said, can we expand this across the land-grant college system? And the very first extension agent that was hired is a gentleman by the name of Thomas Monroe Campbell. He was an a Tuskegee employee. He goes and works for the government. And if you go to the USDA's Hall of Fame right now in Washington, D.C., the only two black faces you see there are George Washington Carver and Thomas Monroe Campbell. Why do I say all that to say in relation to the valuation that society has for agriculture? Most of the time, we don't even know that history enough to know how much like black institutions literally saved this country, right? And if we don't place that kind of value on it, both outside of the black community and within it. Mm -hmm. See, black people have in, in mass a disdain for agriculture because it was used to exploit us. The value of food isn't going to be high because it's like, well, that's that old, like, you know, dirty work. Yeah. I don't want to deal with that. And then you want to charge me six dollars a pound for a tomato? You? No, I'm not paying you for that. I want to go get it for $3 or $2 or $1, not knowing, but the same system still exists. The Immokalee workers are still being exploited, you know. Um, we can go on and on. I don't even want to get too far off track, but we don't have a valuation because we don't know what our system really is. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008, and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I think there's a, a lot there for even myself to, to learn and understand mm -hmm. that history. And I think for an individual like yourself now in this position, mm -hmm. you know, it, it sounds like you're not just trying to create an organized plan for the community, but you're also trying to inspire and exactly. lead the community. That's right. And, you know, what advice um, do you give to, you know, the, the child, the young adult mm -hmm. that is looking mm -hmm. for a pathway to 
produce food to become a farmer or to support their family? Yeah. The simplest way to answer that is I'm going to teach them how to understand this story that I just described from the inside out Mm -hmm. and then show them what that looks like. So what do I mean by that? Again, chattel captivity is always told as an oppression was happening to a group of people, right? No one ever stops and talk about telling that story from the inside out, the capacity of those people to produce. So if you just stop and think about it, if Africans were brought over here and indigenous people who were already here were subject to this system and they were capable of creating the amount of volume of products, Mm -hmm. they were capable of actually continuing to do that for hundreds of years. What if that capability was managed by them? What if they were actually able to say to themselves, you know what, instead of being subject to rule, now I'm the ruler of myself and I use that same capacity for myself. Mm -hmm. We'd be talking about a totally different history. And if you look at what happened after slavery ended, that started to rear its head. It's, I think, quite apropos that this interview that you and I are doing is taking place just days after we started celebrating the 100th, you know, commemoration of Tulsa. Mm -hmm. That was a really a a commemoration of capacity because people came right out of chattel captivity and were able to create Tulsa, Oklahoma, Auburn Avenue in Atlanta, uh, 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 Rosewood in Florida, Treme in New Orleans, Seneca in New York, Memphis in Tennessee. These were, these things were happening all over the, the globe, actually. Well, let me, excuse me, the nation. And still, the ability to just be self-sufficient became something that was treated as a threat and it was undercut. Mm-hmm. But just imagine if it was allowed to thrive. I think we would be talking about a different situation. So my job with the next generation is to show them that capacity. You have the capacity to do this. Don't let anybody tell you that this is, you know, some trivial work or that it doesn't require brain power. Because let's be real. Every farmer I know is like, man, like I said, they're a mason. They're an electrician. Mm-hmm. They're a plumber. They're an engineer. Jack of all trades. They're a mechanic. Well, watch this now. Be careful about that. The jack is a term that we don't even really use clearly anymore. The jack was a jack leg. The jack leg is the person who's not really sharp at anything. They're just like getting to know this stuff. Farmers were masters of all trades. They weren't jack legs. They knew everything about mechanics. They knew everything about electricity. And if you stop and think about it, the land grant schools taught all of those different skills because they knew people used to know all those skills. So we're getting back to a place of mastery. I think we are jacks of all trades right now. We can touch and go a few little mm-hmm. things here and there, but we don't know this history because we don't even have the skills to understand it or think about it anymore. But my sons and my daughter, for example, if I send them out there right now and they range from age now seven to 15, the seven-year-old is just as sharp as the 15-year-old in that farm. And what I'm grateful for is I have parents that kind of reared me in that same way. Not kind of, they did. But of course, as I got older, I chose to go whichever routes I went. But I'm retroactively applying a lot of what they taught me. We'll just say that much. And what I realized is like, Self-sufficiency and mastery is what's missing in this country. We've relied so much on big corporations to give us everything. 
that we no longer need our own skills to feel secure anymore. But when you go through a COVID and you have no more dependency upon some of these systems, some of which have literally collapsed and failed, Mm -hmm. companies have gone under, the people are forced to have to gain mastery over their life again. And like I said, the timing of it, I can only say is is divine. It's, It's serendipity that in East Point, we put this plan together to basically say, we already think that this is valuable, but now I think people are really starting to get it. And I'm just grateful that I am the person that's in a position to help with that because I'll close on the point not to knock, you know, uh, most of our public servants and politicians. They know a lot of stuff. Agriculture at a city level, though, is one in which they really are learning. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it would have been good to have just somebody who's got a good resume in city management, right? City planning and things of that nature handle this one. This one needed to be handled by the people. Yeah. It's, to me, the only way that it could really work. And if the people know how to create systems to then replicate themselves, then fine. As more people come in who may not be truly rooted in agriculture, uh, uh, take these jobs, they can still take those systems and replicate what we've created. But it needs to start with the people. Mm-hmm. So as a farmer in this position, what is your long-term vision for the city of East Point? So I'll say this, there's several things that I want to see put in place. Number one, and I'm working to put them in place. Number one, that we have an actual commission that's uh, ran by the citizens. We'll call it an urban agriculture commission to make sure that again, this role that I have is not a paternalistic role. I'm not here to really tell the people what to do. I'm here to hear what they want to get done and figure out where are the pieces mm-hmm. of the puzzle and put it together. So that's number one, people power, the people assembling themselves. And I feel I, I have the ability and definitely the desire to make that happen. Uh, number two, to definitely create a strong bond between the agricultural skills and our education systems, right? We need the schools to be able to really teach this subject again. And again, when I'm saying agriculture, I'm kind of using the term loosely. So to really focus it in more, I mean, home ec is not really like a thing like it used to be in previous generations. It needs to be a strong, you know, subject in schools again. And that home economic system definitely needs to embrace agriculture. Mm -hmm. So I want to see farm to school be a part of what I'm doing. And I've already started talking to some of the elementary schools in East Point about how to strengthen that. Number three, have both intentional food systems that farmers and gardeners can produce, but also have food systems that are just in place by way of, uh, we'll say more, um, uh, how can I put it? Like my good comrade, Mario Camradella, right? Who was the former uh, urban ag director in Atlanta, you know, put together a food forest in Atlanta, right? That kind of concept to me is, is key. Like we need to have systems of food access that don't require monetary exchange, mm-hmm. don't require someone toiling over the ground all the time. Because we talk about agriculture always from a production standpoint, but what about the foraging side of it? Nature still produces a lot yeah. of food that we don't have to go and like plant the seed in the ground for. So I definitely want to see there be, you know, maybe some use of like some of the parks, you know, in East Point having their own just self-contained food forestry systems in place. And then just because I'm a farmer and thus that's a position of 
uh, entrepreneurialism, and I'll then add in the gardeners, which is is, is a point of self-sufficiency. I definitely want to see the people learn to grow for themselves as much as they can, whether, again, they choose to do it as just a homestead or to feed themselves, or if they choose to do it to actually make a living. I definitely see the opportunity for economic development to embrace agriculture as a real career at a city level. Here it is. East Point is within Georgia. Georgia's main economic driver is agriculture. And yet we haven't really figured out how to align economic development in major cities with the largest economic driver of this state. To me, it's high time that we do that. And that can be done through small scale agriculture, hyper local agriculture, both in ground and controlled environment. All of it together, I think, can just continue to perpetuate what the state already understands holistically, but I don't think has really drilled down into the city level and said, wait a minute, you know, this could work here too, especially considering fact that the highest density of people are in the cities. We're not in the rural areas like we used to be. I think it's almost like a, 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 a point of national security or state security to start saying, hey, look, you can't keep holding on to the old food system if it requires people and the people aren't in the areas to produce that food, you might want to bring those systems to the areas where the people are at. Mm-hmm. Right. So production, whether it be, again, for entrepreneurial reasons or, or self-sufficiency is, you know, really obviously a no brainer. That's like the low hanging fruit. But those other three you know, portions that I mentioned, I really want to put more attention to those only because that's where a lot of attention isn't currently. Maybe outside of, you know, the the farm to school thing. There's definitely some attention there. But, you know, we've got growers that are doing their things. We're going to incentivize them to keep growing. But we've got to build out the rest of the system. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be where a lot of my focus is. What advice would you give to city officials and policymakers as they start to integrate food production into, you know, urban environments? Awesome question, man. Uh, Number one, definitely don't try to reinvent the wheel in two ways. Number one... Just go see what's already going on in your city. It's already happening. Look, it is what it is. Most farmers have asked for forgiveness versus permission. You know, they're they're not out here looking for like business permits and things like that to farm. They're growing their food, right? So go learn what's already happening and figure out ways to just support it. But then also look at what's already been done in some of these other cities so that, again, you can begin to kind of like have some, you know, precedence to draw upon. A prime example, I know in Riverside, California, they already have like a water metering and irrigation system born out of the fact that they are the home, if you will, of the navel orange, right? And so because that orange is grown in such high density in that particular municipality, that municipality knew that it needed to really focus on how to create a more uh, I don't want to say just because it wasn't about like oppression versus not. It was just a more refined system for growers to grow their food because they knew that that's an economic driver for their municipality. Like that's, you know, gross income coming in and out when that food is produced there. Right. So they created like water rating systems that were applicable to their agricultural needs. That just being, of course, one sector of like ag planning. It would be good for these new cities to study that and to say, okay, if this is how they pulled it off, we could probably do something very similar, right? Look at the city ag plans that have already been written and just figure out how to, again, retroactively apply some of that to your own area 
But then, of course, still look at the identity of your area and figure out some unique things. And that's where, going back to that first point, go and see what's already happening, right? I'm pretty sure agriculture in New York looks a hell of a lot different than Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason for them to just look at Atlanta and be like, we're going to do that here. No, look at the foundation of what we've done, right? The spirit of it, the culture of it, the drive of it, but make it work for you. And last but not least, make it a networking opportunity, not just well, we're going to do our version and, you know, kind of be over here in our silo, but let's form alliances, you know, and I can actually uh, happily say that I've recently learned that the urban agricultural director in Philly, uh, we have an officer in D.C., uh, the officer now here in Atlanta, Jaolu Bayou, uh, and many other people have already actually started that. They've been literally having meetings where they're talking mm -hmm. and sharing ideas, swapping notes. Uh, now that I'm in my position, I've been invited to be a part of it. So we got to all be really networking too, you know, and that's my advice is don't operate in a silo. Just come to the family. You know, this is the cool kids club right here, right now, you know, and, um, I'd say last but not least, make sure that they approach this from a non-paternalistic position. Because again, let's be real. If it hadn't become chic and sexy, most of these folks wouldn't even really know what it is. So now that they are learning about it, don't try and come in and tell all of us who've been doing this for decades how to do what we do. You know, just let's have an exchange. We know what things we know. We know what things we don't know mm -hmm. and vice versa. And let's figure out how to bring that together. Because what I can say I have found, even in the, the process of me getting my position, is that sometimes there's this paternalistic approach to telling the people what's good for them or what's not good for them. And if the people are still saying, no, actually, I want exactly what you just said is not good for me. Maybe you got to listen a little bit more and figure out why are they saying that they want that? You know, maybe they don't want another big box store. Maybe they do want a cooperative. Mm -hmm. Learn about cooperatives. Yeah. Figure out why they're saying that and not just dismiss it because it doesn't have the big gleaming lights that are going to attract 10 other big box businesses. People are getting tired of the big box model. Mm -hmm. It's not that we want to throw it out with the bathwater. But the mom and pop way of doing things is becoming attractive again. Independent business, independent media, mm -hmm. right? Gets probably more traction than big box media does right now. Major media, quote unquote. The cities, I think, have an opportunity to get ahead of that and not try and quell it because it doesn't feel familiar. And that can very much become an issue in agriculture if they're not careful, right? And last but not least, I'll say this for the cities that have them. These cities want to definitely tap into, they have these county committees that are being formed by the Farm Service Agency around urban agriculture. So they definitely need to learn how to get people from their actual municipalities onto those committees. And last but not least, look at what the USDA is doing to budget for funding agricultural activities mm -hmm. in cities. So to be honest with you, just putting like a capitalist hat on real quick, like there's money millions of dollars being funded by the U.S. government for urban agricultural activities. And cities would be shoe-ins for receiving that money to help optimize the very systems that, you know, they're, they're learning about. Um, that would be, I think, my range of buckets yeah. that I would tell anybody who's working at city government, you know, to think about when getting into this, this world. Mm -hmm. Final question for you. Mm -hmm. um, what books, resources, um, 
and role models, I know you've mentioned a few already, would you share with, you know, the larger audience that mm-hmm. inspired you to, to go down this path? Strong books. Uh, number one, Harvesting Opportunity, The Power of Regional Food System Investments to Transform Communities. I bet you won't guess who published this. I'm not going to try it. Ooh, Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. And it's really the entire board of governors. Wow. It's just that they took it on as their project. Mm-hmm. This is the central bank saying stuff like this. Local food demand in the U.S. evolution of the marketplace and future potential. The investment continuum. Financing local and regional sustainable food enterprises. A matter mm-hmm. of what? National security. Wow. This book is powerful. Organic, a solid, beneficial, and sustainable investment. Mm-hmm. This is a big book, and that's your copy because I oh, got a whole bunch no, of them. Really? Yeah, I've got oh, about thank you. twelve of them. Uh, people need to know about this history. You know, collective courage—a history of African American cooperative economic thought and practice. Not only due to his historical reference to that community, but it's just cooperative economic mm-hmm. thought and practice. Period. It can be applied to anybody. So Dr. Jessica Gordon-Niebuhr wrote this book. Uh, This is a very powerful book uh, that I think people should take heed to. You know, I mentioned Thomas Monroe Campbell. This is his autobiography. The mobile, excuse me, the movable school goes to the Negro farmer. This is the history of the cooperative Mm -hmm. extension system right here in this one book. A few more. Another one, Jackson Rising, The Struggle for Economic Democracy and black self-determination, again, contextualized around the struggle that African people have made in this country, but it teaches systems that we should be just using as a whole. That idea of assembling the people Mm -hmm. that I talked about, that's exactly how the city of Jackson, Mississippi, was able to elect this man mayor by a landslide vote of over 90%. He dies within his first term of office, his son runs for mayor and wins by a landslide of 90%. This city of Jackson, Mississippi mm-hmm. has created a model for citizen government that I just think is the future. Mm-hmm. And it ties very much so into agriculture because they have their own cooperative farm in Jackson, Mississippi, and they have a system called Cooperation Jackson that uh, would be, or excuse me, an organization called Cooperation Jackson. That's a part of a system called the Jackson Cush Plan mm-hmm. that's very important to know about. A uh, few more, and then I think I'll be done. Um, I want to get away from history a little bit more into just systems. You know, here's a good book, classic one from uh, another Tuskegee representative. It's an old, old title, but it can be retrofit to today. How to Make $100,000 Farming 25 Acres. Now, that's what Booker T. Watley, the author, was saying in, I think it's 85, 87. Mm-hmm. So just do the math yeah. in today and you can figure <laughs> out what that would really be worth, mm-hmm. right? But see, all he does is he goes through systems. How to actually make your farm a system, mm-hmm. you know, literally down to like what crops should you be growing when and how to grow them in a way in which it kind of fits within a holistic model. Mm-hmm. And a good complement to this idea is, are you familiar with spin farming? Mm-mm. They have books. So I'll just say the system is what's important to know about, but they do have books. And what spin farming actually does is they teach you, even I'd say in even a more refined fashion than Booker T. Watley did, mm-hmm. how to literally create your farming system so that you've got like high value crops, 
mid to high value, mid to low value and low value crops that you can grow in a way in which certain crops cover like operations costs mm -hmm. and certain crops put you like into the black, right? Mm -hmm. Excuse me. And so then you'll know how to really create a nice formula of crops so that on less than one acre, mm -hmm. or let me, excuse me, at, at, at one acre, not less than one acre, they have been able to repeat three times the ability to make, I think, about $120,000 gross on an acre of land. Mm -hmm. They did this research actually at a university in Pennsylvania, and then they encapsulated it into a book, and they've been promoting this system now, I think, for over a decade, if not close to a decade, and the stuff works. They've got all, they got people from all over the globe who are saying, look, I haven't hit 100 yet, but like I hit 70 this year, I hit 90 this year. And these are people who are growing on like small plots of yeah. land, like an acre. And yet we're always told that like you got to have all these swaths of land yeah. to produce all this food and to make all this money. I'm sorry, these folks are proving, mm -hmm. disproving that. And this is what, of course, cities, right, are going to really need to be able to take heed to because we already know we don't have but, you know, quarter acre plots, an acre plot here, two acres mm -hmm. there. Density of use of that land is going to be key. And they've already created the systems. So this is, I'm, a, I'm sold out for spit yeah. farming. I'm not even going to lie. Like, that's what I use to grow my own food. And I encourage people to do so. You know, I'd say those are some good books. And I'd be remiss if I ain't shout out this man right here, Rashid Nuri. Mm -hmm. His biography, Growing Out Loud. Shirley Sherrod and Charles Sherrod. Because they created the first land trust in the United States. All right. They went and studied the kibbutz. Mm -hmm. All right. And then came back and started replicating that model right here in the U.S. And now land trusts are some of the hot topics in being able to preserve the land that's being taken up through sprawl and through development. Um, so there's organizations that are actually literally going out and talking to landowners and saying, hey, look, don't let this, you know, new age uh, idea of like just building on land and, and, and taking away, you know, nature uh, intimidate you. Mm -hmm. There are some real estate transactional models that can mm -hmm. protect you. And land trust are one of them. And this lady and her husband, literally, with a group of other black farmers, uh, in the 19, I want to say 70s, and could be as early as the 1960s, created uh, what was known as New Communities. New Communities lost its land during the 80s farm crisis. They had uh, close to 6,000 acres. Mm -hmm. They were able to get it back, though. Um, and now they have, I think, roughly like 1,500 acres. So... It's not as big as it used to be. It literally went through, you know, a transition of no longer being to them, you know, rescuing it at a new location. But thought leaders, man, I mean, they were doing this stuff way before it was sexy and chic. Yeah. And she's still alive now. She's right down in Albany, Georgia, you know, still doing work. Her organization is called the Southwest Georgia Project. So that would be some good ones. As you see, I got a lot more, but those are the ones that I think kind of teach as you were asked earlier, the inspiration yeah. to get us into this work. I mean, yeah, I can easily say how to grow organically yeah. and backyard medicine, but like, it's the why that makes people do this work. Mm -hmm. It's not the how, it's mm -hmm. the why. Once they get the why, they'll figure out the how, you know. But if you don't have the why, you're just kind of doing it as a hobby. Yeah. And when the bugs come, you're like, ah, mm. I'm not dealing with those bugs today. <laughs> but you got to um, have something to keep you in the game. Yeah. Tunisia, man, this has been amazing. Yeah. Thank you for the time, for sharing your story. And I, I greatly appreciate it. And yeah, for bro. the book. Yeah, man. Thanks to our brilliant guests. 
Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio and at fields podcast. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.